Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon Thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. But to... For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Joseph. Please join me in welcoming back Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo. Thank you, Melanie. Um, and I, I thought I would begin with uh, the quotation I used last week from Father Freeman. He says, rather than being defended, marriage needs to be taught and lived. The church needs to be willing to become the place where that teaching occurs as well as the place that can sustain couples in the struggle required to live it. Um, and I shared with you a number of statistics this week. I'll just share with you one. Uh, and that is that 76% of Catholics believe that divorce is an acceptable option. 76%. The fact is that our catechesis on marriage in the church is not working. And we are not forming people who are able to live the mystery of marital love. And I think the reason for that crisis is not simply due to a failure in catechesis uh, in the sense of that the content is bad, but the fact that we don't have an atmosphere in the church which sufficiently supports married couples. Um, and instead of having that atmosphere needed to support a life of sacrificial love, we are in our modern day society as Christians um, enveloped in an atmosphere which is very much anti-Christian, which stands against the very principles that the church teaches about marriage I talked about love last week in our, my opening remarks and the true nature of love as putting two individuals in a relationship of dependency. Dependency on, on each other to the extent that the two truly can be described as becoming one. And dependency in our modern society is rejected. Independence has become the greatest of all human rights, and freedom has been redefined as license. Love, as Pope Benedict stated, is seen as dependency, and it is rejected. 
in its place comes autonomy. And this concept of freedom, or this false concept of freedom, is something which is completely contrary to Christ's teaching on love and marriage. The biblical view of marriage is something very much different than that. It is a view which sees dependency as a blessing and authentic authentic freedom as choosing what is right and good for man. I concluded my opening remarks last week by saying how hard this is for us moderns who are surrounded by an anti-Christian atmosphere, but how beautiful God's way is if we open ourselves up to its possibility. How beautiful God's way is if we are willing to humble ourselves to a, a place of dependency, a place where we receive from others the gift which God wants to give us. We spoke last week about the creation of Adam in the image and likeness of God and how their union of marriage on the seventh day was to be a reflection, a revelation of the life of God Himself. God who is defined by St. John as love. And therefore, as I said last week, we can understand that love in three ways or three revelations And each one is related to the other in the sense that each one draws us to understand the other revelation. God is love and He has lived a life of love from all eternity within the life of the Holy Trinity. That love is revealed to us in Genesis in God's desire to share His life with us. And when He shares His life with us and we enter into a covenant with Him, the two become one in the marriage covenant of creation. And that marriage covenant of creation of God's relationship with man can also be revealed in the flesh, if you will, between Adam and Eve who are meant to reveal God on this earth. And so by looking at marriage, we can come to understand God's love for us. We can come to understand the love of God Himself as He has lived from all eternity. By also looking at God's love for us, which we see most beautifully in the form of the cross, we can come to understand what we are called to as husbands and wives in our relationship with each other. In fact, I came across a... a, uh, a writing of, from Pope Benedict on the, t- on the topic of Ephesians and Colossians. And I, today, as I was preparing uh, for our evening together, he says, We learn what marriage is in the light of the communion of Christ and the church. We learn how Christ is united to us in thinking of the mystery of marriage. You see the two aspects. We learn what marriage is in light of the communion of Christ in the church, and we learn how Christ is united to us in thinking of the mystery of marriage. So these two aspects play together to reveal to us the fullness of the truth of God's love for us. 
We'll see this. His, his point there is regarding Ephesians chapter 5. What he's saying is, when you're reading Ephesians chapter 5, which is the primary text we usually turn to to understand St. Paul's teaching on marriage, and it's not very clear, as he points out, he says it's not clear at all whether St. Paul is referring to Christ and the church as the referent point for understanding marriage, or if he's referring to marriage as the referent point for understanding Christ and His church. The two interplay beautifully together. And the two are meant to reveal authentic love together. We also spoke of Eve, bone of Adam's bone, who was born from his side and in marriage was to return as his heart. We spoke of what I called the first divorce. That moment when chapter 2 turns to chapter 3 in Genesis. When Adam sees his flesh of his flesh, and suddenly Eve begins speaking with the serpent rather than speaking with the one for whom she was made. And we learn from St. Ephraim about the importance of paying very close attention to narrative timing. When we read in Genesis very carefully, it says that Eve ate first and then gave to Adam. And St. Ephraim tells us that this was an attempt to become head over her head or, or older in divinity in the presence of the one who is older than her in humanity. This is a turning on its head of the created order. That created order in which God bestowed His life upon Adam and Adam became the source of life for Eve could also say that Adam received the gift of God's life and Eve from God and Eve received that gift of God's life from Adam. This is the, 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 the created order which is meant to reflect God Himself. That order is critically important. And it is the breaking of that order, the breaking of that order that is revealed to us as the fall of mankind. We spoke about Adam who was to till and keep the garden and failed on both fronts. Instead of cultivating the garden and feeding Eve with its fruit, Adam becomes the one who is fed. Instead of keeping and guarding the garden, Adam shrunk from his duty to protect his bride when, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, Adam let his trust in God die in his heart. Finally, remember the atmosphere of paradise that we talked about. The necessary atmosphere of freedom in which the different parties, God and man and man and woman, can enter into an authentic covenant of love where there is no freedom there is no love. Freedom is the necessary atmosphere for love. People, people oftentimes ask me why God allowed the fall. And the answer is simple. God needed, wanted, to create an atmosphere in which He could share His life with us. And apart from that atmosphere of freedom, there is only slavery. 
And God is not a dictator. He is our Father. Love and slavery are opposed to one another. And if freedom was the atmosphere of the covenant in the beginning, before the fall, then after the fall, the atmosphere of freedom gains a new component, a necessary component, and that is the component of freedom, of forgiveness. Where there is no forgiveness, there can be no freedom. And where there is no freedom, there is no love. As I said, where there is no forgiveness, there can only be a relationship of slave and master. I shared with you a quotation from David Shilton last week when he says that God's relationship with Israel was always defined in terms of the covenant, the marriage bond by which he joined her to himself as his special people. And if God is going to reclaim his image and likeness, he must reunite Adam and Eve as the incarnate proof of his love. But to regain marriage, the unity of Adam and Eve, he must first regain his relationship with his people upon which their relationship is based. In the beginning, we had a double divorce. When Adam and Eve turned away from God, they broke communion with God and with each other. This will be the story of salvation history. It is a great love story in which we read of God, our lover, our husband, our father, who goes seeking after his son to reunite his creation to himself. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. If you want to know what the law of God is all about, it's found right here in this extremely important text in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to be doing a lot of Bible flipping tonight, guys, so I apologize if you don't have your Bible with you. Chapter 10, verse 12. Are you with me? Don't start reading yet. You're cheating. Okay. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, period. What does God want from His faithful, from His people? He wants their heart. He wants their love. And that truth is something true in Genesis before the fall. It is true all through salvation history. It is true in the message of Jesus Christ. And it is true today. I will say this, and even though I'm being recorded, I really don't care. God could care less if you go to Mass on Sunday. What He wants from you is to go to church on Sunday with your heart and when your heart isn't there, it's not going to do anything for you. The law became the curse of the Jews. 
it became the curse of the Jews. As Christians, we don't go to church on Sunday to fulfill the law, to fulfill an obligation. We go to church on Sunday to have communion with the resurrected Christ. And in Him is life. And only in Him is life. And life will only be found in us if we are in communion with Him. If we are sharing in His resurrected life. Turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah. If Deuteronomy was hard to find, you're going to have a little bit of a difficult time here. Tonight... Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is like almost in the middle of your Bible. So you can kind of flip around right there in the middle of your Bible and you'll find Jeremiah. Don't be afraid to kind of scan the pages of your books. You know, I don't know where Jeremiah is in my Bible. I've just turned there enough to be able to kind of like grab it and it happens. So it's there. Flip around and you'll find it. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. Jeremiah, of course, is preaching during the Babylonian, or just in preparation for the Babylonian captivity when the people of God had become, as you'll see in a moment, harlots. They had gone to worship other lords. They had communicated themselves and entered into covenant with a God who was not their husband. As I read to you earlier, the relationship between God and His people is always understood in terms of the marriage covenant. And it's only in terms of that relationship between God and His people that we will come to truly understand our relationship between husband and wife. Turn just a few verses. Chapter 2, chapter two verse 20. When we go to verse 19, it's fine. You'll get a sense of what's going on. Your wickedness will chasten you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. Yea, upon every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down as a harlot. God's people is, are always described in terms of marriage. Their marriage to God who is their husband. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. When Jeremiah begins to talk about the restoration of creation which is what our focus is tonight. Chapter 31, verse 31. It's so easy to memorize that. 31-31. This is a great and beautiful prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Though I was their husband, says the Lord. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put My law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The necessary atmosphere for love after the fall is forgiveness. And God through the prophet Jeremiah proclaims that wonderful truth that God will not hold the sins of His people, the harlotry of His people, against them but He will indeed forgive their sins. Turn with me. Just a, It's not too far in your Bibles. The prophet Hosea. A little more difficult to find, but if you just turn maybe, I don't know, 50 pages or so in your Bible, you're going to see it there right after Ezekiel and Daniel. And then you'll see Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's speaking of His people. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more, and I will make for you a covenant. On that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground. Remember Genesis. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to Me forever. I will betroth you to Me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I want to look at one last prophecy, that of Ezekiel. So go back in your Bibles just a few pages. Just a few pages back in your Bible to Ezekiel 36. These prophecies, again, are all looking toward restoration. All looking to the moment when God would send His Son to restore all things to His original plan. And notice what He says. Verse, chapter 36, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations... Verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. Remember that, that phrase. I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. And I will cleanse you from all uncleanness. This is the mission of Jesus Christ. And this is the context and the framework in which we must see His work. 
Jesus is our Savior simply because He saves us from the problem. It is all too often that we write theology books and build libraries on other principles and forget the fundamental principle of why Jesus has come and what Jesus is doing in His ministry. Why He founded the church. And it is simply to give us back that which we lost in the fall. Period. He is our Savior because He saves us from the problem. And that problem has everything to do with a breakdown of marriage. The work of Christ will undo the knot of sin tied by the serpent. He will make right and reorder the disorder of the fall. And so, as we uh, ended last week, John begins his Gospel with a seven-day structure mimicking the seven days of creation. And on the seventh day of John's Gospel, where is Jesus standing? Where is He standing? Bob? Yeah, that's a pretty good answer. It wasn't the one I was expecting though. On the seventh day of John's Gospel, Jesus is standing in the city of Cana at a wedding. John's Gospel begins Jesus' ministry mirroring the beginning of the story of creation. To place Jesus at the very moment when Adam failed so that Jesus can do right what Adam did wrong. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And you hear those beautiful words of John the Baptist when Jesus comes. Chapter 3, verse 28. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. This is John the Baptist talking. But I have been sent before Him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And of course, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you see, when John is called to submit to the Master, his joy is full when he dies. For John, the fullness of his ministry is revealed at the moment when he can submit himself totally to the One who is the Bridegroom of the church. In his book of Revelation, John the Evangelist describes the church as the new Jerusalem, the bride adorned for her husband. And in this scene of restoration, all sin is wiped out. Everything is forgiven. And St. John tells us beautifully that the Bridegroom will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Death, which is the greatest insult flung in the face of God. Death, 
which is the result of the fall of Adam and Eve. Context, context, context. Jesus has come to reverse the fall. And the restoration which Jesus will bring will be a reversal of what took place in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. The bridegroom is described by St. John as the Lamb standing as though it were slain. The Lamb standing as though it were slain. What a strange image. The one who has entered into the battle and been slain by the enemy is victoriously standing. Why? Because unlike Adam, he did not let his trust in God die in his heart. He stood his ground. Not my will, but thy will be done. Christ has totally submitted himself to the Father. He is totally dependent upon the Father from whom he receives his life, regardless of what lie in front of him. This is the heart of the restoration of God's image and likeness on earth. This is the restoration of Adam as the Son of God. And what is the result? John tells us in the book of Revelation, his bride will follow him wherever he goes. His bride will follow him wherever he goes. I say all of this because understanding Christ's relationship with his church is the key to understanding Christian marriage. No more does the bride speak with the serpent. No more does Eve feed Adam. No, the new Adam has done what the old Adam had failed to do. He submitted his life to God. And he gave his life for his bride. No greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friend. What a beautiful image of faithful love. It is this context that we need to properly understand St. Paul's difficult teachings on marriage, which is what I want to turn to now. It is that above that context which we just laid out, Christ's love for His church and Adam's failure to provide, which is the background for everything that St. Paul teaches about marriage. To understand what St. Paul teaches, which oftentimes is very difficult to understand, we need to grasp who St. Paul was. First, he was a Pharisee. And I know the Pharisees get a, a bad rap in the New Testament, but the Pharisees are kind of like people that come out for a Bible study on a rainy Tuesday night instead of staying at home. Okay, St. Paul was serious, serious about one thing as a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he was serious about preparing the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. The Pharisees were serious about that. They believed that God had not come to restore the Davidic kingdom because the people had not prepared themselves to be His bride. And anything 
which took place within the community, which distracted from that preparation, was to be cast out as a heresy is cast out. It is to be struck down and killed. St. Paul was very serious about what he did, which is why he went after the Christians. He believed, he believed that Christianity and Christ was distracting the people from preparing themselves for the coming of the true Messiah. We learn first about St. Paul or Saul in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. For time's sake, I'm not going to have you turn there because you know the story well. You know the story well. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. And it says the young men came and laid their cloaks at his feet. And at that moment, Paul rose in his place as a Pharisee, as a leader among the people. And he immediately went after the other Christians. We learn also about him in Acts chapter 9. You can turn there. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he, would, if he found any belonging to the way, the way is the, 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 the first identifier of the Christians, those who followed the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This story is, is fleshed out a little bit in Acts chapter 26. You can turn there. Acts chapter 26, when Paul is in front of King Agrippa and he's on trial, and he describes this moment of his own conversion. Some of you, I'm sure, in this room are converts to the Catholic faith, yes? Okay, I describe myself as one, even though I was baptized a Catholic, I fell away. And I remember the moment of my conversion. I remember the moment when God called me. It's a moment that has stayed with me the rest of my life. And those that have ever gone through an experience like that will remember it also. It changes the direction of your whole life. And everything about your life from that moment forward will be based upon that moment. And I believe that that happened to St. Paul. That it was this moment on the road to Damascus that fundamentally changed his life and gave him direction as to what he did for the rest of his life. And you can only understand his teachings in the context of this moment. And he gives us a little more detail here in Acts chapter 6, verse... Uh, sorry, 26, I'm sorry. Chapter 26, verse 12. He says to the king, Thus I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
It hurts to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are You, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom You are persecuting, but rise and stand upon Your feet, for I have appeared to You for this purpose, to appoint You to serve and bear witness to the things in which You have seen Me and to those in which I will appear to You. Hold on to that line. Because that's His mission statement. I have appointed You to bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and the things in which I will appear to you. We get even more detail in 2 Corinthians. You can just a few pages over uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12. In what has St. Paul seen Jesus? In what has St. Paul seen Jesus that he is now going to dedicate his whole life to that in which he has seen Him? Let's take a look at chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. Make sure you're there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Most commentators agree that this is St. Paul reflecting upon himself in the third person. I must boast... Therefore, there is nothing to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Very important. He has a vision of paradise. He has a vision of the Garden of Eden. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But I myself, but, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. And he goes on. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know what happened to me. But I can tell you this, that I saw into paradise itself. And it was that vision in which he saw Christ that changed fundamentally the rest of his life. Suddenly, earth became heaven. And the mysteries things which cannot be told appeared before him. When a man goes through a conversion like this, his life changes in a moment. When Christ spoke to him, it changed everything. It turned him around 180 degrees. What was it that St. Paul saw? If we know this, we will understand the man. What was it that St. Paul saw Jesus in? In Acts chapter 9, we hear our Lord's words. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Who is St. Paul persecuting? Has St. Paul ever met Jesus? Not that we know of. Who was St. Paul persecuting? Yeah. He was was persecuting Christians. 
He was persecuting the followers. Not Jesus, right? Right? Suddenly, in a moment, Jesus sees in paradise the union of God and man. Suddenly, in a moment, He sees in paradise the restoration of all things. Suddenly, He sees in paradise that the two have become one. The bride of God has been adorned for her husband. The two have become one flesh. The great mystery. The great mystery which He will struggle the rest of His life to explain. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans comes right after Acts. Romans chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 3. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice Jesus doesn't say when we were baptized... Sorry, St. Paul doesn't say when we were baptized like Jesus. He says when we were baptized into Christ Jesus. When we were made one with Him. We were given the newness of life. And that newness of life is the newness of the life of Jesus Christ Himself. The two have become one flesh. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Me? This is the reason that the early Christians called baptism the nuptial bath. This is the moment of the wedding of the recreation of the world. Remember those words from the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle you with clean water and place a new heart within you. The husband, as Hosea prophesied, has come for his bride. I shared with you this quotation from, Saint, from, from uh, Scott Hahn from uh, last time. From the beginning of human existence, the orders of nature and grace were meant to be married. The wedding occurred at the dawn of history with creation as Genesis reveals. The seventh day, the Holy Sabbath, was a sign of the nuptial covenant marking the union of heaven and earth, God and man, male and female. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be doing a lot of flipping today, guys, so get used to it. Chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Notice the two ideas that are placed side by side by St. Paul. He will do this in virtually every single text in which he refers to marriage. He will refer to the fall and to the creation of Adam and Eve and their marriage in one flesh. St. Paul's context for what he writes about marriage is always the context of Christ's relationship with His church 
and the original creation of marriage between Adam and Eve. And when he does describe this great mystery, how does he describe the union of the bride and the bridegroom? How can he describe this great mystery which he cannot speak of? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just as Eve was taken from the rib of Adam and brought back in the marital union as his body, chapter 12, verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized, literally plunged into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. Look at verse 27. For you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You have through baptism been joined into one flesh with God, restoring the original covenant which He made with Adam and Eve. St. Paul's vision in paradise, St. Paul's vision is of paradise restored. It is the vision of the depth and breadth of God's sacrificial love. A love not as power and authority, but as service and sacrifice. It is here that we can begin to understand his teaching about marriage as mutual dependency and authentic freedom. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just one page over, really. It says, fundamentally important. Verse 2. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Normally when we hear those words as, as modern people, we focus upon that which is, seems to be most offensive and that is that the husband is the head of his wife. But we need to refocus our eyes not upon ourselves, but upon God Himself. The head of Christ is God the Father. This is why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I do nothing of My own authority, but speak as the Father has taught Me. So that those that hear Christ hear God Himself. Jesus can say to Philip, He who sees Me sees the Father. Because Jesus has totally submitted Himself to His Father. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. That means, gentlemen, that for us to be men we must first submit ourselves totally to our head so that the One who speaks when we open our mouth is not us, but Christ Himself. As St. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because when you imitate St. Paul, you imitate one who has been transformed 
into God Himself. The head of every man is Christ. When that happens, when we submit ourselves to Christ totally, then the image and likeness of God is restored in us. When we are totally submissive to Christ, we will be transformed in true freedom into His image and likeness. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. I started with this last week. Well, that, that's a tough saying, isn't it? Don't let it just pass over you as Bible talk. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? It's Jesus. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to God. How is that possible? How is that possible that a woman can be expected to submit to her husband as she would submit to Jesus Christ? How is that possible? Unless we first understand that a Christian man, to be called a Christian, must be able to say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because the man is a Christian, he has been divinized through his total union with Christ. I want you to notice the conclusion of this text in chapter, or in chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Every time St. Paul talks about marriage, he talks about Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, a little bit further along in your Bible there. And now we get to the two most difficult texts, which no one in their right mind uses when they're speaking in public when there are women present. I don't want to do a disservice to the Word of God. Chapter 2, 1 Timothy, chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. Stop. Now don't throw anything at me. Why does St. Paul say this? Why does he say that? A woman is to stay silent? Is this guy a misogynist? Do you think? Does he hate women? I've, I've talked to people before that say, I love the Word of God, but I hate St. Paul. That's not okay. You can't, do, you can't draw that distinction. Why should a woman learn in silence? Why is silence critical to St. Paul's understanding of the restoration of the incarnation of God's love on earth? What's that? It flips it back. What do you mean it flips it back? What did, what did Eve do at that critical moment? 
she spoke with the serpent instead of speaking with the one for whom she had been made. That's St. John Chrysostom. That's not Deacon Sabatino. Look at what St. Paul says next. For Adam was joined, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Do you see? Everything St. Paul teaches must be understood in the context of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Look at 1 Corinthians with me. Just flip back again to 1 Corinthians. We're almost done with your flipping your Bible. I apologize. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. It's the same point, maybe more offensive. If it can get worse, right? Chapter 14. Don't start reading yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all of the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, nor should, but should be subordinate, as even the law says. If there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. Let them ask their husbands at home. Why? Don't be afraid of these texts. Please don't be afraid of them. They're placed here for our instruction about the truth of what God wants in His church and about that context in which all things are properly restored. If a husband and wife, or I should say if a wife doesn't know somebody in church in that moment of the seventh day worship of God, and asks her husband, what does it reveal about the two? Are they one flesh? If he knows something that she doesn't know, have they been totally united? St. Paul is absolutely insistent that when we are in public worship, when we are standing together doing the very thing that God made us to do as Christians, all things must be restored to their proper order. All things must be placed in the context of Genesis chapter 2 before the fall. This isn't a problem with women alone because you have to ask yourself, what has the husband been doing that he knows things which his wife doesn't share in. Not to be found in the public worship of the church. You go home and reconcile yourselves to each other and then come back to the church. Please don't be offended. We have to rid our minds of the false, false notions of authority and power. Christ is our model of headship. As St. Jerome says, in the church, leaders are servants. Let them imitate the apostles. The difference between secular rulers and Christian leaders is that the former love to order their subordinates, whereas the latter serve them as Christ served the church. Christ is the model into which our life is plunged through baptism. 
We become the incarnation of Christ on earth. Our entire life becomes sacrifice that our life might give life to others. St. Paul understands marriage in terms of Christ. In marriage, ladies, you are united to Christ Himself. When you serve your husbands, God has given you the greatest possible gift that He stands in the flesh and allows you to serve Him. Today, you can talk with Christ. Here we learn what true freedom is. The man's entire vocation is to do what Christ has done. To give his entire life for his bride. To die that she might live. Turn back with me finally, last time I have you do this, to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's read that first verse that I didn't read before. Chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ as head serves His bride. Christ as head makes His entire life hers. Submit yourself to one another. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Does a, does a husband have a role in the salvation of his wife? Absolutely. And vice versa. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And here we can hear those words of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, that He may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, you want to know what you're to do for your wife? You're to do what baptism does for her. Your entire life is to be about her sanctification. And that can only happen if you give the life which God has given to you to her, whole and entire. Nothing can be reserved. Nothing can be held back. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. The bone which came from Adam's side returns as his heart. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery. This is the great mystery which St. Paul saw on that road to Damascus. And I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Men, we must submit ourselves to Christ so that we can say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is why the church from her very beginning has insisted, has pleaded with us that we marry fellow Christians. The statistics today are bad. Less than 10% of single Catholics say that it is very important to them that their spouse is Catholic. No wonder they are on a road for divorce. Only a man who can say that, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, is a worthy candidate to be a husband. And the ladies must be transformed into Christ also. It is Jesus who from all eternity received from the Father His life. It is Jesus who can say, not what my will is, but what my Father's will is. It is Jesus who says, when you look at me, you see the Father. It is the Jesus who is your model. And it is Jesus who your husband serves when he serves you. I'll conclude with Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. That's at the end of your Bibles. I'm sorry, it's not chapter 18, it's chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you very much for your attention. This is uh, commenting on something that you said last week and in a, in a Christian marriage, the man should be the bider you know, and the head, and the woman should be the heart. But could you sort of address on um, the idea that many couples, including us, because of the financial environment that we're in now, you know, both the, the man and the wife need to work, or the, the woman uh, might be the main breadwinner with the husband a secondary breadwinner um, and it's very difficult now for the man especially in northern Virginia to earn enough money on his own to be the main provider and and that kind of impacts us psychologically I would simply say that we are under attack and I don't think we need to be ashamed or afraid of that is this on yeah okay um, that it's a reality that we are living in. We're living in a war zone, um, and it's strewn with the remains of marriage. 
I, I really believe what Father, what Father Freeman says is that there's, uh, that those manning the barricades describe themselves as defending marriage. That is a deep inaccuracy. Marriage is an institution that was surrendered quite some time ago. Today's battles are not about marriage, but simply about dividing the spoils of its destruction. And I think, it's, I think that's uh, sadly very much, very much true. Um, and, and I think we need to admit that, that we are in a, in a serious crisis. The economic situation that is set up in our country and really throughout the world today is one which is against the family and against marriage. I'm living it. I have two jobs. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's not easy. And so I would, I would simply say I, I feel f for these situations. I understand these situations. And I think we need to go into these situations with a realization and an understanding that we're not living in an ideal situation, which makes it m even more difficult to live the biblical vision of marriage. It makes it even more difficult. Probably, well, it's difficult for both. The man who feels this sense of, of uh, inability to provide, uh, and, and the woman, uh, I think, a, a real temptation to have that freedom and independence from her husband, which is something foreign to Christian marriage. Um, but it's a place we're in. We have to set ourselves up within our families to deal with that, to talk about it, and constantly renew in ourselves a sense of authentic, the, the proper biblical concept of marriage, uh, even in situations where we have a an, an, uh, less than ideal living situation. Thank you. Deacon Sampatino, last week you... Uh stated marriage needs to be taught and lived in the church. The church is the place where that teaching needs to begin. Could you comment more on what you think the church needs to do more, at least even in our own diocese? I think that the church needs to be the place where Christianity is taught and lived. And that's the fundamental problem. That and I say nothing about this church here. I don't, know, I don't know this parish very well. But I think in all too many of our churches, we, the faithful, treat our parishes as sacrament factories in which we fulfill an obligation. You cannot live a marriage like that. Where I come to get what I want and I leave when I get it. And I think, and I'll speak as a deacon now, as for the clergy, that we all too often treat our churches as our concubines. And those aren't my words, those are Father Bergman's words. We treat our churches as our concubines. And as clergy, we are not willing to sacrifice our life for our bride. I, I'm sorry to say it, but I think it's, it's all too often true. And we need to restore our churches to a place where we are living together as Christian families. We are learning together. We're praying together. 
even though it's inconvenient, even though it takes self-sacrifice, even though the world says that there's other things to do. This is our home, and we need to restore our churches as our homes. And it's, I think, that context which can then provide the seedbed in which couples can come and live. You see, what Father Freeman's saying is that they have to be the place where marriage is lived. Marriage isn't lived in our churches anymore. The church isn't our home anymore, oftentimes. We need to restore the church as our home, where we eat together, where we pray together, where we live together, where we suffer together, where we are rejoicing together, where we're feasting and fasting together, where we're worshiping God together. It has to be the place where my heart yearns for when I'm gone, and the only place that my heart is fulfilled when I'm there. Deacon, has there ever been a time in human history and culture where the marriage, marriage has been under, under attack or been devalued, such as we're seeing now, and um, what, was it recovered? Is there a happy ending? Yeah, so I began, I began our, um, our, uh, our time together last week with a quotation from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And it simply said that, that uh, the people should have known God from the created order. And I, my point was that they, could have, they should have come to know God through the beauty of, of Christian marriage. Uh, but they didn't. And they turned to base things there are things underneath them and began to worship things that were created rather than the one who created. And when they did that, they began to live their life in the image and likeness not of God's love, but of the love of base things. And that's where St. Paul says, men began having relations with men and women began having relations with women. And they turned basically into pagan idolaters. This was what St. Paul was saying. So I, your, your, your question is an excellent one because we are facing a crisis in our society, but it's a crisis which has been known. And the sad thing is today, because we don't know our history, we don't know our philosophy, we don't know our theology, we don't have a good context to deal with the attacks which are coming at us. These are attacks with the, which the devil has been throwing at us from the beginning. From the very beginning, the devil has tried to destroy the gift of life because the gift of life is the revelation of God who is love. He has always attacked life. Abortion was known in the ancient world. Divorce was allowed, as Jesus says, because the hardness of heart of the Jews. These things have been known, and we need to be well-founded in, in, in history the history of God's dealing with men, so that when these attacks come, we're not thrown off kilter as Christians trying to plug a dam which is, which is leaking. No, we need to stop trying to plug the holes in the dam, and we need to decide for ourselves that we are going to live the life of Christ. When Christians begin to live the life of Christ, we will begin to shine the light of God out of us. And that light is pervasive. It changes lives. But until we begin to live Christian marriage again, until we are a witness in society, we're going to struggle. Whether it's Christian marriage 
or, or uh, the Christian single life, until we begin to shine with God's life, that our life is about God, period. I am totally transformed into Him. Everything that comes out of my mouth. You say you're a Jesus freak. Great! I'm happy to be called a Jesus freak. I'm happy to be laughed at by my cousins and my aunts and uncles. I'm happy, I'm happy for, my, for my siblings to think I'm crazy and not want to talk to me. It's true in my, in my life. It's sad, but it's true. But I continue to do what God has asked me to do. That must be our identity. And then we'll begin to transform those around us. We'll become evangelical Christians, as you guys were just hearing in this hall a few days ago. Evangelical Christians. But that evangelical Christianity is a relationship first with Jesus Christ. Period. And then I begin to influence those around me by my very life, which is so contrary to the life which the world is living. That's why Father Bergman said that, that, uh, that, that parents have to have, you know, you've got to be having 10, 15 kids so that everybody turns, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know? And they're, they just, his point, although it may have been hurtful even to some who don't have children or, or haven't been married yet, that wasn't his point. His point was we have to become transformative. We have to look different. We have to look like Christ. And Christ, Christ looked different. He transformed those around him. I don't even remember what the question was, but thank you. Thank you. All right. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.